Everybody dies, don't they? The Upper Birth by F. Marion Crawford Somebody asked for the cigars. We had talked long, and the conversation was beginning to languish. The tobacco smoke had got into the heavy curtains. The wine had got into those brains which were liable to become heavy. And it was already perfectly evident that unless somebody did something to rouse our oppressed spirits, the meeting would soon come to its natural conclusion, and we, the guests, would speedily go home to bed, and most certainly to sleep. No one had said anything very remarkable. It may be that no one had anything very remarkable to say. Jones had given us every particular of his last hunting adventures in Yorkshire. Mr. Tompkins of Boston had explained at elaborate length those working principles by the due and careful maintenance of which the Atchison, Topeka and Santa Fe Railroad not only extended its territory, increased its departmental influence and transported livestock without starving them to death before the day of actual delivery, but also had for years succeeded in deceiving those passengers who bought its tickets into the fallacious belief that the corporation aforesaid was really able to transport human life without destroying it. Signor Tombola had endeavoured to persuade us, by arguments which we took no trouble to oppose, that the unity of his country in no way resembled the average modern torpedo, carefully planned, constructed with all the skill of the greatest European arsenals, but when constructed, destined to be directed by feeble hands into a region where it must undoubtedly explode, unseen, unfeared, and unheard into the illimitable wastes of political chaos. It is uh, unnecessary to go into further details. The conversation had assumed proportions which would have bored Prometheus on his rock, which would have driven Tantalus to distraction, and which would have impelled Ixion to seek relaxation in the simple but instructive dialogues of Herr Ollendorf rather than submit to the greater evil of listening to our talk. We had sat at table for hours, we were bored, we were tired, and nobody showed signs of moving. Somebody called for cigars. We all instinctively looked towards the speaker. Brisbane was a man of five and thirty years of age, and remarkable for those gifts which chiefly attract the attention of men. He was a strong man, the external proportions of his figure presented nothing extraordinary to the common eye, though his size was above the average. He was a little over six feet in height and moderately broad in the shoulder. He did not appear to be stout, but on the other hand he was certainly not thin. His small head was supported by a strong and sinewy neck. His broad muscular hands appeared to possess a peculiar skill in breaking walnuts without the assistance of the ordinary cracker, and seeing him in profile, one could not help remarking the extraordinary breadth of his sleeves and the unusual thickness of his chest. He was one of those men who are commonly spoken of among men as deceptive, 
that is to say, that though he looked exceedingly strong, he was in reality very much stronger than he looked. Of his features I need say little. His head is small, his hair is thin, his eyes are blue, his nose is large, he has a small moustache and a square jaw. Everybody knows Brisbane, and when he asked for a cigar, everybody looked at him. It's a very singular thing, said Brisbane. Everybody stopped talking. Brisbane's voice was not loud, but possessed a peculiar quality of penetrating general conversation and cutting it like a knife. Everybody listened. Brisbane, perceiving that he had attracted their general attention, lit his cigar with great equanimity. It is very singular, he continued, that thing about ghosts. People are always asking whether anybody has seen a ghost. I have. Bosh, what, you? You don't mean to say so, Brisbane. Well, for a man of his intelligence. A chorus of exclamations greeted Brisbane's remarkable statement. Everybody called for cigars, and Stubbs the butler suddenly appeared from the depths of nowhere with a fresh bottle of dry champagne. The situation was saved. Brisbane was going to tell a story. I'm an old sailor, said Brisbane, and as I have to cross the Atlantic pretty often, I have my favourites. Most men have their favourites. I have seen a man wait in a Broadway bar for three quarters of an hour for a particular car which he liked. I believe the barkeeper made at least one third of his living by that man's preference. I have a habit of waiting for certain ships when I am obliged to cross that duck pond. It may be a prejudice, but I was never cheated out of a good passage but once in my life. I remember it very well. It was a warm morning in June, and the custom-house officials, who were hanging about waiting for a steamer already on her way up from the quarantine, presented a peculiarly hazy and thoughtful appearance. I had not much luggage, I never have. I mingled with the crowd of passengers, porters, and officious individuals in blue coats and brass buttons, who seemed to spring up like mushrooms from the deck of a moored steamer to obtrude their unnecessary services upon the independent passenger. I have often noticed, with a certain interest, the spontaneous evolution of these fellows. They're not there when you arrive. Five minutes after the pilot has called, Go ahead! They, or at least their blue coats and brass buttons, have disappeared from deck and gangway as completely as though they had been consigned to that locker which tradition unanimously ascribes to Davy Jones. But at the moment of starting, there they are, clean-shaved, blue-coated, and ravenous for fees. I hastened on board. The Kamchatka was one of my favourite ships. I say was, because she emphatically no longer is. I cannot conceive of any inducement which would entice me to make another voyage in her. Yes, I know what you are going to say. She is uncommonly clean in the run aft. She has enough bluffing off in the bows to keep her dry, and the lower berths are most of them double. She has a lot of advantages. But I won't cross in her again. Excuse the digression. I got on board. I hailed a steward whose red nose and red whiskers were equally familiar to me. 
One hundred and five lower berths, said I, in the business-like tone peculiar to men who think no more of crossing the Atlantic than taking a whisky cocktail at downtown Delmonico's. The steward took my portmanteau, greatcoat, and rug. I shall never forget the expression of his face, not that he turned pale. It is maintained by the most eminent divines that even miracles cannot change the course of nature. I have no hesitation in saying that he did not turn pale, but from his expression I judged that he was either about to shed tears, to sneeze, or to drop my portmanteau. As the latter contained two bottles of particularly fine old sherry presented to me for my voyage by my old friend Snigginson van Pickens, I felt extremely nervous, but the steward did none of these things. Well, I'm damned, said he in a low voice and led the way. I suppose my Hermes, as he led me to the lower regions, had had a little grog, but I said nothing and followed him. One hundred and five was on the port side well aft. There was nothing remarkable about the stateroom. The lower berth, like most of those upon the Kamchatka, was double. There, there was plenty of room. There was the usual washing apparatus calculated to convey an idea of luxury to the mind of a North American Indian. There were the usual inefficient racks of brown wood, in which it is more easy to hang a large-sized umbrella than the common toothbrush of commerce. Upon the uninviting mattresses were carefully folded together those blankets which a great modern humorist has aptly compared to cold buckwheat cakes. The question of towels was left entirely to the imagination. The glass decanters were filled with a transparent liquid faintly tinged with brown, but from which an odour less faint but not more pleasing ascended to the nostrils like a far-off seasick reminiscence of oily machinery. Sad-coloured curtains half-closed the upper berth. The hazy June daylight shed a faint illumination upon the desolate little scene. Ah, how I hate that stateroom! The steward deposited my traps and looked at me, as though he wanted to get away, probably in search of more passengers and more fees. It is always a good plan to start in favour with those functionaries, and I accordingly gave him certain coins there and then. I'll try and make you comfortable all I can, he remarked as he put the coins in his pocket. Nevertheless, there was a doubtful intonation in his voice which surprised me. Possibly his scale of fees had gone up, and he was not satisfied. But, on the whole, I was inclined to think that, as he himself would have expressed it, he was the better for a glass. I was wrong, however, and did the man injustice. 2. Nothing especially worthy of mention occurred during that day. We left the pier punctually, and it was very pleasant to be fairly under way, for the weather was warm and sultry, and the motion of the steamer produced a refreshing breeze. Everybody knows what the first day at sea is like. People pace the decks and stare at each other, and occasionally meet acquaintances whom they did not know to be on board. 
There is the usual uncertainty as to whether the food will be good, bad, or indifferent, until the first two meals have put the matter beyond a doubt. There is the usual uncertainty about the weather, until the ship is fairly off Fire Island. The tables are crowded at first, and then suddenly thinned. Pale-faced people spring from their seats and precipitate themselves towards the door, and each old sailor breathes more freely as his seasick neighbour rushes from his side, leaving him plenty of elbow-room and an unlimited command over the mustard. One passage across the Atlantic is very much like another, and we who cross very often do not make the voyage for the sake of novelty. Whales and icebergs are indeed always objects of interest, but, after all, one whale is very much like another whale, and one rarely sees an iceberg at close quarters. To the majority of us the most delightful moment of the day on board an ocean steamer is when we have taken our last turn on deck, have smoked our last cigar, and having succeeded in tiring ourselves, feel at liberty to turn in with a clear conscience. On that first night of the voyage I felt particularly lazy and went to bed in 105 rather earlier than I usually do. As I turned in, I was amazed to see that I was to have a companion. A portmanteau, very like my own, lay in the opposite corner, and in the upper berth had been deposited a neatly folded rug with a stick and umbrella. I had hoped to be alone, and I was disappointed, but I wondered who my roommate was to be, and I determined to have a look at him. Before I had been long in bed, he entered. He was, as far as I could see, a very tall man, very thin, very pale, with sandy hair and whiskers and colourless grey eyes. He had about him, I thought, an air of rather dubious fashion, the sort of man you might see in Wall Street, without being able precisely to say what he was doing there, the sort of man who frequents the Café Anglais, who always seems to be alone and to drink champagne. You might meet him on a race course, but he would never appear to be doing anything there either. A little overdressed, a little odd. There are three or four of his kind on every ocean steamer. I made up my mind that I did not care to make his acquaintance, and I went to sleep saying to myself that I would study his habits in order to avoid him. If he rose early, I would rise late. If he went to bed late, I would go to bed early. I did not care to know him. If you once know people of that kind, they're always turning up. Poor fellow. I need not have taken the trouble to come to so many decisions about him, for I never saw him again after that first night in 105. I was sleeping soundly when I was suddenly waked by a loud noise. To judge from the sound, my roommate must have sprung with a single leap from the upper berth to the floor. I heard him fumbling with the latch and bolt of the door, which opened almost immediately, and then I heard his footsteps as he ran at full speed down the passage, leaving the door open behind him. The ship was rolling a little, and I expected to hear him stumble or fall, but he ran as though he were running for his life. The door swung on its hinges with the motion of the vessel and the sound annoyed me. I got up and shut it, and groped my way back to my berth in the darkness. I went to sleep again, but I have no idea how long I slept. When I awoke, 
It was still quite dark, but I felt a disagreeable sensation of cold, and it seemed to me that the air was damp. You know the peculiar smell of a cabin which has been wet with seawater. I covered myself up as well as I could and dozed off again, framing complaints to be made the next day, and selecting the most powerful epithets in the language. I could hear my roommate turn over in the upper berth. He had probably returned when I was asleep. Once I thought I heard him groan, and I argued that he was seasick. That is particularly unpleasant when one is below. Nevertheless, I dozed off and slept till early daylight. The ship was rolling heavily, much more than on the previous evening, and the grey light which came in through the porthole changed in tint with every movement, according as to the angle of the vessel's side turned the glass seawards or skywards. It was very cold, unaccountably so for the month of June. I turned my head and looked at the porthole, and saw to my surprise that it was wide open and hooked back. I believe I swore audibly. Then I got up and shut it. As I turned back, I glanced at the upper berth. The curtains were drawn close together. My companion had probably felt cold as well as I. It struck me that I had slept enough. The stateroom was uncomfortable, though, strange to say, I could not smell the dampness which had annoyed me in the night. My roommate was still asleep, excellent opportunity for avoiding him, so I dressed at once and went on deck. The day was warm and cloudy, with an oily smell on the water. It was seven o'clock as I came out, much later than I had imagined. I came across the doctor, who was taking his first sniff of the morning air. He was a young man from the west of Ireland, a tremendous fellow with black hair and blue eyes, already inclined to be stout. He had a happy-go-lucky, healthy look about him, which was rather attractive. "'Fine morning,' I remarked, by way of introduction. Well said he, eyeing me with an air of ready interest. It's a fine morning, and it's not a fine morning. I don't think it's much of a morning. Well, uh, no, it is not so very fine, said I. It's just what I call fuggly weather, replied the doctor. It was very cold last night, I thought, I remarked. However, when I looked about, I found that the porthole was wide open. I hadn't noticed it when I went to bed, and the stateroom was damp, too. Damp, said he. Whereabouts are you? One hundred and five. To my surprise, the doctor started visibly and stared at me. What is the matter? I asked. Oh, nothing, he answered. Only everybody has complained of that stateroom for the last three trips. I shall complain too, I said. It has certainly not been properly aired. It's a shame. I don't believe it can be helped, answered the doctor. I believe there is something. Well, it's not my business to frighten passengers. You need not be afraid of frightening me, I replied. I can stand any amount of damp. If I should get a bad cold, I will come to you. I offered the doctor a cigar, which he took and examined very critically. It is not so much the damp, he remarked. However, I dare say you'll get on very well. Have you a roommate? Yes, a deuce of a fellow who bolts out in the middle of the night and leaves the door open. Again, the doctor glanced curiously at me. Then he lit the cigar and looked grave. Did he come back? he asked presently. Yes, I was asleep, but I waked up and heard him moving. Then I felt the cold and went to sleep again. 
This morning I found the porthole open. Look here, said the doctor quietly. I don't care much for this ship. I don't care a rap for her reputation. I tell you what I'll do. I have a good-sized place up here. I'll share it with you, though I don't know you from Adam. I was very much surprised at the proposition. I could not imagine why he should take such a sudden interest in my welfare. However, his manner as he spoke of the ship was peculiar. You are very good, doctor, I said, but really I believe even now that the cabin could be aired or or cleaned out or, or something. Why do you not care for the ship? We are not superstitious in our profession, sir, replied the doctor, but the sea makes people so. I don't want to prejudice you, and I don't want to frighten you, but if you take my advice, you will move in here. I would as soon see you overboard, he added, as know that you or any other man was to sleep in 105. Good gracious, why? I asked. Just because on the last three trips the people who have slept there actually have gone overboard, he answered gravely. The intelligence was startling and exceedingly unpleasant, I confess. I looked hard at the doctor to see whether he was making game of me. But he looked perfectly serious. I thanked him warmly for his offer, but told him I intended to be the exception to the rule by which everyone who slept in that particular stateroom went overboard. He didn't say much, but looked as grave as ever, and hinted that before we got across I should probably reconsider his proposal. In the course of time we went to breakfast, at which only an inconsiderable number of passengers assembled. I noticed that one or two of the officers who breakfasted with us looked grave. After breakfast I went into my stateroom in order to get a book. The curtains of the upper berth were still closely drawn. Not a word was to be heard. My roommate was probably still asleep. As I came out I met the steward whose business it was to look after me. He whispered that the captain wanted to see me, and then scuttled away down the passage as if very anxious to avoid any questions. I went towards the captain's cabin and found him waiting for me. Sir, said he, I want to ask a favour of you. I answered that I would do anything to oblige him. Your roommate has disappeared, he said. He is known to have turned in early last night. Did you notice anything extraordinary in his manner? The question, coming as it did, in exact confirmation of the fears the doctor had expressed half an hour earlier, staggered me. You don't mean to say he's gone overboard, I asked. I fear he has, answered the captain. This is the most extraordinary thing, I began. Why, he asked. He's the fourth, then, I explained. In answer to another question from the captain, I explained without mentioning the doctor that I had heard the story concerning 105. He seemed very much annoyed at hearing that I knew of it. I told him what had occurred in the night. What you say, he replied, coincides almost exactly with what was told me by the roommates of two of the other three. They bolt out of bed and run down the passage. Two of them were seen to go overboard by the watch. We stopped and lowered boats, but they were not found. Nobody, however, saw or heard the man who was lost last night, if he really is lost. 
The steward, who is a superstitious fellow, perhaps, and expected something to go wrong, went to look for him this morning, and found his berth empty, but his clothes lying about it, just as he had left them. The steward was the only man on board who knew him by sight, and he has been searching everywhere for him. He has disappeared. Now, sir, I want to beg you not to mention the circumstance to any of the other passengers. I don't want this ship to get a bad name, and nothing hangs about an ocean-goer like stories of suicides. You shall have your choice of any one of the officer's cabins you like, including my own, for the rest of the passage. Is that a fair bargain? Very, said I, and I am much obliged to you. But since I am alone and have the stateroom to myself, I'd rather not move. If the steward will take out that unfortunate man's things, I would as leave stay where I am. I will not say anything about the matter, and I think I can promise you that I will not follow my roommate. The captain tried to dissuade me from my intention, but I preferred having a stateroom alone to being the chum of any officer on board. I do not know whether I acted foolishly, but if I had taken his advice, I should have had nothing more to tell. There would have remained the disagreeable coincidence of several suicides occurring among men who had slept in the same cabin, but that would have been all. That was not the end of the matter, however, by any means. I obstinately made up my mind that I would not be disturbed by such tales, and I even went so far as to argue the question with the captain. There was something wrong about the stateroom, I said. It was rather damp. The porthole had been left open last night. My roommate might have been ill when he came on board, and he might have become delirious after he went to bed. He might even now be hiding somewhere on board and might be found later. The place ought to be aired and the fastening of the port looked to. If the captain would give me leave, I would see that what I thought necessary were done immediately. Of course, you have a right to stay where you are if you please, he replied rather petulantly, but I wish you would turn out and let me lock the place up and be done with it. I did not see it in the same light, and left the captain after promising to be silent concerning the disappearance of my companion. The latter had had no acquaintances on board and was not missed in the course of the day. Towards evening I met the doctor again, and he asked me whether I had changed my mind. I told him I had not. Then you will before long, he said very gravely. 3. We played whist in the evening, and I went to bed late. I will confess now that I felt a disagreeable sensation when I entered my stateroom. I couldn't help thinking of the tall man I had seen the previous night, who was now dead, drowned, tossing about in the long swell, two or three hundred miles astern. His face rose very distinctly before me as I undressed, and I even went so far as to draw back the curtains of the upper berth, as though to persuade myself that he was actually gone. I also bolted the door of the stateroom. Suddenly I became aware that the porthole was open and fastened back. This was more than I could stand. I hastily threw on my dressing gown and went in search of Robert, the steward of my passage, 
I was very angry, I remember, and when I found him I dragged him roughly to the door of 105 and pushed him towards the open porthole. What the deuce do you mean, you scoundrel, by leaving that port open every night? Don't you know it's against the regulations? Don't you know that if the ship healed and the water began to come in, ten men couldn't shut it? I report you to the captain, you blackguard, for endangering the ship. I was exceedingly wroth. The man trembled and turned pale, and then began to shut the round glass plate with the heavy brass fittings. Why don't you answer me? I said roughly. If you please, sir, halted Robert, there's nobody on board as can keep this here port shut at night. You can try it yourself, sir. I ain't a-going to stop any longer on board of this vessel, sir. I ain't indeed. But if I was you, sir, I'd just clear out and go sleep with the surgeon or something. I would. Look here, sir. Is that fastened what you may call securely or not, sir? Try it, sir. See if it will move a hinch. I tried the port and found it perfectly tight. Well, sir, continued Robert triumphantly, I wager my reputation as an A1 steward that in half an hour it'll be open again. Fasten back too, sir. That's the awful thing. Fasten back. I examined the great screw and the looped nut that ran on it. If I find it open in the night, Robert, I'll give you a sovereign. It is not possible. You may go. Sovereign, you say, sir? Very good, sir. Thank you, sir. Good night, sir. Pleasant repose, sir, and all manner of enchanting dreams, sir. Robert scuttled away, delighted at being released. Of course, I thought he was trying to account for his negligence by a silly story, intended to frighten me, and I disbelieved him. The consequence was that he got his sovereign, and I spent a very peculiarly unpleasant night. I went to bed. And five minutes after I had rolled myself up in my blankets, the inexorable Robert extinguished the light that burned steadily behind the ground glass pane near the door. I lay quite still in the dark, trying to go to sleep, but I soon found that impossible. It had been some satisfaction to be angry with the steward, and the diversion had banished that unpleasant sensation I had at first experienced when I thought of the drowned man who had been my chum but I was no longer sleepy, and I lay awake for some time, occasionally glancing at the porthole which I could just see from where I lay, and which, in the darkness, looked like a faintly luminous soup plate suspended in blackness. I believe I must have lain there for an hour, and, as I remember, I was just dozing into sleep when I was roused by a draught of cold air and by distinctly feeling the spray of the sea blown upon my face. I started to my feet, and not having allowed in the dark for the motion of the ship, I was instantly thrown violently across the stateroom upon the couch which was placed beneath the porthole. I recovered myself immediately, however, and climbed upon my knees. The porthole was again wide open and fastened back. Now, these things are facts. I was wide awake when I got up, and I should certainly have been waked by the fall had I still been dozing. Moreover, I bruised my elbows and knees badly, and the bruises were there on the following morning to testify to the fact, if I myself had doubted it. The porthole was wide open and fastened back. A thing so unaccountable 
that I remember very well feeling astonishment rather than fear when I discovered it. I at once closed the plate again and screwed down the loop nut with all my strength. It was very dark in the stateroom. I reflected that the port had certainly been opened within an hour after Robert had at first shut it in my presence, and I determined to watch it and see whether it would open again. Those brass fittings are very heavy and by no means easy to move. I could not believe that the clump had been turned by the shaking of the screw. I stood peering out through the thick glass at the alternate white and grey streaks of the sea that foamed beneath the ship's side. I must have remained there a quarter of an hour. Suddenly, as I stood, I distinctly heard something moving behind me in one of the berths. And a moment afterwards, just as I turned instinctively to look, though I could of course see nothing in the darkness, I had a very faint groan. I sprang across the stateroom and tore the curtains of the upper berth aside, thrusting in my hands to discover if there were anyone there. There was someone. I remember that the sensation, as I put my hands forward, was as though I were plunging them into the air of a damp cellar, and from behind the curtain came a gust of wind that smelled horribly of stagnant seawater. I laid hold of something that had the shape of a man's arm, but was smooth and wet and icy cold. But suddenly, as I pulled, the creature sprang violently forward against me, a clammy, oozy mass, as it seemed to me heavy and wet, yet endowed with a sort of supernatural strength. I reeled across the stateroom, and in an instant the door opened and the thing rushed out. I had not had time to be frightened, and quickly recovering myself, I sprang through the door and gave chase at the top of my speed, but I was too late. Ten yards before me I could see, I'm sure I saw it, a dark shadow moving in the dimly lighted passage, quickly as the shadow of a fast horse thrown before a dog cart by the lamp on a dark night. But in a moment it had disappeared and I found myself holding on to the polished rail that ran along the bulkhead where the passage turned towards the companion. My hair stood on end, and the cold perspiration rolled down my face. I am not ashamed of it in the least. I was very badly frightened. Still, I doubted my senses and pulled myself together. It was absurd, I thought. The Welsh rarebit I'd eaten had disagreed with me. I had been in a nightmare. I made my way back to my stateroom and entered it with an effort. The whole place smelled of stagnant seawater, as it had when I had waked on the previous evening. It required my utmost strength to go in and grope among my things for a box of wax lights. As I lighted a railway reading lantern, which I always carry in case I want to read after the lamps are out, I perceived that the porthole was again open and a sort of creeping horror began to take possession of me, which I never felt before, nor wished to feel again. But I got a light and proceeded to examine the upper berth, expecting to find it drenched with seawater. But I was disappointed. The bed had been slept in, and the smell of the sea was strong, but the bedding was as dry as a bone. 
I fancied that Robert had not had the courage to make the bed after the accident of the previous night. It had all been a hideous dream. I drew the curtains back as far as I could and examined the place very carefully. It was perfectly dry, but the porthole was open again. With a sort of dull bewilderment of horror, I closed it and screwed it down, and thrusting my heavy stick through the brass loop, wrenched it with all my might till the thick metal began to bend under the pressure. Then I hooked my reading lantern into the red velvet at the head of the couch and sat down to recover my senses, if I could. I sat there all night, unable to think of rest, hardly able to think at all, but the porthole remained closed, and I did not believe it would now open again without the application of a considerable force. The morning dawned at last, and I dressed myself slowly, thinking over all that had happened in the night. It was a beautiful day, and I went on deck, glad to get out in the early pure sunshine, and to smell the breeze from the blue water, so different from the noisome, stagnant odour from my stateroom. Instinctively I turned aft towards the surgeon's cabin. There he stood, with a pipe in his mouth, taking his morning airing precisely as on the preceding day. "'Good morning,' said he quietly, but looking at me with evident curiosity. "'Doctor, you were quite right,' said I. "'There is something wrong about that place.' "'I thought you would change your mind,' he answered rather triumphantly. "'You've had a bad night, eh? Shall I make you or pick me up?' I have a capital recipe. Uh, no thanks, I cried, but I would like to tell you what happened. I then tried to explain as clearly as possible precisely what had occurred, not omitting to state that I had been scared as I had never been scared in my whole life before. I dwelt particularly on the phenomenon of the porthole, which was a fact to which I could testify, even if the rest had been an illusion. I had closed it twice in the night, and the second time I had actually bent the brass in wrenching it with my stick. I believe I insisted a good deal on this point. "'You seem to think that I am likely to doubt the story,' said the doctor, smiling at the detailed account of the state of the porthole. "'I do not doubt it in the least. I renew my invitation to you. Bring your traps here and take half my cabin.' "'Come and take half of mine for one night,' I said. Help me to get to the bottom of this thing. You will get to the bottom of something else if you try, answered the doctor. What? I asked. The bottom of the sea. I am going to leave this ship. It is not canny. Then you will not help me to find out. Not I, said the doctor quickly. It's my business to keep my wits about me, not to go fiddling about with ghosts and things. Do you really believe it is a ghost? I inquired rather contemptuously. But as I spoke, I remembered very well the horrible sensation of the supernatural which had got possession of me during the night. The doctor turned sharply on me. Have you any reasonable explanation of these things to offer? He said. No, you have not. Well, you say you'll find an explanation. I say that you won't, sir, simply because there is not any. But, my dear sir, I retorted, do you, a man of science, mean to tell me that such things cannot be explained? I do, he answered stoutly, and if they could, I would not be concerned in the explanation. 
I did not care to spend another night alone in the stateroom, and yet I was obstinately determined to get at the root of the disturbances. I do not believe there are many men who would have slept there alone after passing two such nights, but I made up my mind to try it. If I couldn't get anyone to share a watch with me, the doctor was evidently not inclined for such an experiment. He said he was a surgeon, and that in case any accident occurred on board, he must always be in readiness. He could not afford to have his nerves unsettled. Perhaps he was quite right, but I am inclined to think that his precaution was prompted by his inclination. On inquiry, informed me that there was no one on board who would be likely to join me in my investigations, and after a little more conversation I left him. A little later I met the captain and told him my story. I said that if no one would spend the night with me, I would ask leave to have the light burning all night and would try it alone. Look here, said he, I'll tell you what I'll do. I will share your watch myself, and we will see what happens. It is my belief that we can find out between us. There may be some fellow skulking on board who steals a passage by frightening the passengers. It is just possible that there may be something queer in the carpentering of that berth. I suggested taking the ship's carpenter below and examining the place, but I was overjoyed at the captain's offer to spend the night with me. He accordingly sent for the workman and ordered him to do anything I required. We went below at once. I had all the bedding cleared out of the upper berth, and we examined the place thoroughly to see if there was a board loose anywhere, or a panel which could be opened or pushed aside. We tried the planks everywhere, tapped the flooring, unscrewed the fittings of the lower berth, and took it to pieces. In short, there was not a square inch of the stateroom which was not searched and tested. Everything was in perfect order, and we put everything back in its place. As we were finishing our work, Robert came to the door and looked in. Well, sir, find anything, sir? he asked with a ghastly grin. You were right about the porthole, Robert, I said, and gave him the promised sovereign. The carpenter did his work silently and skilfully, following my directions. When he had done, he spoke. I'm a plain man, sir, he said, but it's my belief you had better just turn out your things and let me run half a dozen four-inch screws through the door of this cabin. There's no good never came of this cabin yet, sir, and that's all about it. There's been four lives lost out here to my own remembrance, and that in four trips. Better give it up, sir. Better give it up. I will try it for one night more, I said. Better give it up, sir, better give it up. It's a precious bad job, repeated the workman, putting his tools in his bag and leaving the cabin. But my spirits had risen considerably at the prospect of having the captain's company, and I made up my mind not to be prevented from going to the end of this strange business. I abstained from Welsh rabbits and grog that evening, and did not even join in the customary game of whist. I wanted to be quite sure of my nerves, and my vanity made me anxious to make a good figure in the captain's eyes. 4. The captain was one of those splendidly tough and cheerful specimens of seafaring humanity, whose combined courage, hardihood and calmness in difficulty leads them naturally into high positions of trust. He was not the man to be led away by an idle tale, and the mere fact that he was willing to join me in the investigation was proof that he thought there was something seriously wrong. 
which could not be accounted for on ordinary theories, nor laughed down as a common superstition. To some extent, too, his reputation was at stake, as well as the reputation of the ship. It is no light thing to lose passengers overboard, and he knew it. About ten o'clock that evening, as I was smoking a last cigar, he came up to me and drew me aside from the beat of the other passengers who were patrolling the deck in the warm darkness. This is a serious matter, Mr. Brisbane, he said. We must make up our minds either way, to be disappointed, or to have a pretty rough time of it. You see, I cannot afford to laugh at the affair, and I will ask you to sign your name to a statement of whatever occurs. If nothing happens tonight, we will try it again tomorrow, and the next day. Are you ready? So we went below and entered the stateroom. As we went in, I could see Robert the steward, who stood a little further down the passage, watching us with his usual grin, as though certain that something dreadful was about to happen. The captain closed the door behind us and bolted it. Supposing we put your portmanteau before the door, he suggested. One of us can sit on it. Nothing can get out, then. Is the port screwed down? I found it as I had left it in the morning. Indeed, without using a lever, as I had done, no one could have opened it. I drew back the curtains of the upper berth so that I could see well into it. By the captain's advice, I lighted my reading lantern and placed it so that it shone upon the white sheets above. He insisted upon sitting upon the portmanteau, declaring that he wished to be able to swear that he had sat before the door. Then he requested me to search the stateroom thoroughly, an operation very soon accomplished as it consisted merely in looking beneath the lower berth and under the couch below the porthole. The spaces were quite empty. It's impossible for any human being to get in, I said, or for any human being to open the port. Very good, said the captain calmly. If we see anything now, it must be either imagination or something supernatural. I sat down on the edge of the lower berth. The first time it happened, said the captain, crossing his legs and leaning back against the door, was in March. The passenger who slept here in the upper berth turned out to have been a lunatic. At all events, he was known to have been a little touched, and he had taken his passage without the knowledge of his friends. He rushed out in the middle of the night and threw himself overboard before the officer who had the watch could stop him. We stopped and lowered a boat. It was a quiet night, just before that heavy weather came on. But we could not find him. Of course, his suicide was afterwards accounted for on the ground of his insanity. I, I suppose that often happens, I remarked rather absently. Not often, no, said the captain. Never before in my experience, though I have heard of it happening on board of other ships. Well, as I was saying, that occurred in March. On the very next trip, what are you looking at? He asked, suddenly stopping in his narration. I believe I gave no answer. My eyes were riveted upon the porthole. It seemed to me that the brass loop-nut was beginning to turn very slowly upon the screw, so slowly, however, that I was not sure it moved at all. I watched it intently, fixing its position in my mind and trying to ascertain whether it changed. Seeing where I was looking, the captain looked too. It moves, he exclaimed in a tone of conviction. Uh, no, it does not, he added after a minute. If it were the jarring of the screw, said I, it would have opened during the day. 
but I found it this evening jammed tight as I left it this morning. I rose and tried the nut. It was certainly loosened, for by an effort I could move it with my hands. The queer thing, said the captain, is that the second man who was lost is supposed to have got through that very port. We had a terrible time over it. It was in the middle of the night, and the weather was very heavy. There was an alarm that one of the ports was open and the sea running in. I came below and found everything flooded, the water pouring in every time she rolled, and the whole port swinging from the top bolts, not the porthole in the middle. Well, we managed to shut it, but the water did some damage. Ever since that, the place smells of seawater from time to time. We supposed the passenger had thrown himself out, though the Lord only knows how he did it. The steward kept telling me that he could not keep anything shut here. Upon my word, I can smell it now. Cannot you? he inquired, sniffing the air suspiciously. Yes. Distinctly, I said, and I shuddered as that same odor of stagnant seawater grew stronger in the cabin. Now, to smell like this, the place must be damp, I continued, and yet, when I examined it with the carpenter this morning, Everything was perfectly dry. It's most extraordinary. Hello? My reading lantern, which had been placed in the upper berth, was suddenly extinguished. There was still a good deal of light from the pane of ground glass near the door behind which loomed the regulation lamp. The ship rolled heavily, and the curtain of the upper berth swung far out into the stateroom and back again. I rose quickly from my seat on the edge of the bed, and the captain at the same moment started to his feet with a loud cry of surprise. I had turned with the intention of taking down the lantern to examine it when I heard his exclamation, and immediately afterwards his call for help. I sprang towards him. He was wrestling with all his might with the brass loop of the port. It seemed to turn against his hands in spite of all his efforts. I caught up my cane, a heavy oak stick I always used to carry, and thrust it through the ring and bore on it with all my strength. But the strong wood snapped suddenly, and I fell upon the couch. When I rose again, the port was wide open, and the captain was standing with his back against the door, pale to the lips. There is something in that berth, he cried, in a strange voice, his eyes almost starting from his head. Hold the door while I look. It shall not escape us, whatever it is. But instead of taking his place, I sprang upon the lower bed and seized something which lay in the upper berth. It was something ghostly, horrible beyond words, and it moved in my grip. It was like the body of a man long drowned, and yet it moved and had the strength of ten men living but I gripped it with all my might, the slippery, oozy, horrible thing. The dead, white eyes seemed to stare at me out of the dusk. The putrid odor of rank seawater was about it, and its shiny hair hung in foul, wet curls over its dead face. I wrestled with the dead thing. It thrust itself upon me and forced me back and nearly broke my arms. It wound its corpse's arms about my neck, the living death, and overpowered me so that I at last cried aloud and fell and left my hold. As I fell, the thing sprang across me and seemed to throw itself upon the captain. 
When I last saw him on his feet, his face was white and his lips set. It seemed to me that he struck a violent blow at the dead being, and then he too fell forward upon his face with an inarticulate cry of horror. The thing paused an instant, seeming to hover over his prostrate body, and I could have screamed again for very fright, but I had no voice left. The thing vanished suddenly, and it seemed to my disturbed senses that it made its exit through the open port, though how that was possible, considering the smallness of the aperture, is more than anyone can tell. I lay a long time upon the floor, and the captain lay beside me. At last I partially recovered my senses and moved, and I instantly knew that my arm was broken, the small bone of the left forearm near the wrist. I got on my feet somehow, and with my remaining hand I tried to raise the captain. He groaned and moved, and at last came to himself. He wasn't hurt, but he seemed badly stunned. Well, do you want to hear any more? There is nothing more. That is the end of my story. The carpenter carried out his scheme of running half a dozen four-inch screws through the door of one hundred and five. And if ever you take a passage in the Kamchatka, you may ask for a berth in that stateroom. You will be told it is engaged. Yes, it is engaged by that dead thing. I finished the trip in the surgeon's cabin. He doctored my broken arm and advised me not to fiddle a boat with ghosts and things any more. The captain was very silent and never sailed again in that ship, though it is still running. And I will not sail in her either. It was a very disagreeable experience, and I was very badly frightened, which is a thing I do not like. That is all. That is how I saw a ghost. If it was a ghost. It was dead, anyhow. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? That was uh, The Upper Birth by F. Marion Crawford, which is a very famous horror story. So let me say, first of all, it was sponsored again by Gavin Critchley. Gavin Critchley is a great supporter of this podcast. Every, every now and again, he comes up with money and says, you know, usually do what you want. So I'm massively grateful to him for that. And, uh, you know, hopefully you are too. Uh, he, he makes me able to do this work you know as all do my as do all my sponsors and patrons and substackers and everybody who supports me financially that allows me to produce all these stories for everybody really so let me say something about f marion crawford francis marion crawford was an american author and journalist who lived from 1854 to 1909 he was born in bagni di luca italy to a family of art connoisseurs and spent much of his childhood travelling throughout Europe. Crawford, he was American though, Crawford attended Harvard University for a year before leaving to pursue a career in writing. Crawford began his writing career as a journalist working for several newspapers and magazines such as the New York Tribune and the Boston Evening Transcript. He wrote travel books and essays about his experiences living in Italy and these early works were well received. In 1882, 
Crawford published his first novel, Mr. Isaacs, which was a critical and commercial success. He went on to write over 40 novels, as well as numerous short stories, essays and plays. Many of his works were set in Italy and drew on his experiences living there, including some of his best-known novels such as Saracinesca, Sant'Ilario and Casabraccio. Aside from his success as a writer, Crawford was also descended from a long line of artists and writers. His grandfather, William Crawford, was an American portrait painter, and his great-grandfather, Gilbert Stuart, painted George Washington's portrait. Crawford's father, Thomas Crawford, was a successful sculptor who created several prominent public sculptures in the United States, including the Statue of Freedom on top of the U.S. Capitol building in Washington, D.C. Crawford's novels explored complex themes such as love, betrayal and social class, and his characters often struggled with their own personal demons, making them relatable to readers across time and place. Crawford was considered one of the leading writers of his day and was a member of the American Academy of Arts and Letters. He was awarded several honorary degrees from universities in the United States and Europe. Despite his success, Crawford was known for his private nature and his avoidance of public appearances. He was married twice and had four children. Crawford died in Sorrento, Italy on April 9, 1909 at the age of only 54. His works continue to be read and enjoyed today for their vivid depictions of Italian society, their engaging characters, and their ability to transport readers to other times and places. So let's say something about The Upper Birth. The Upper Birth is a horror story, and it is a horror story, isn't it? Because it's not necessarily a ghost. He says that at the end, he wasn't sure if it was a ghost. It was a monster. Yeah? So um, usually with horror stories, something bad happens. Certainly with modern horror stories, the, the protagonist usually gets eaten by the monster. But uh, in the old days, of course, most ghost stories, the classic ghost stories, they were observed by the protagonist. They were shaken and frightened by them, but they lived to tell the tale. And this is in that vein, you know. So the stories we know, uh, Brisbane takes a cabin across the, on the, it says upper deck, but it's not. It's in, in the bowels, isn't it? I think. One of the strengths of the upper berth is Crawford's ability to create a suspenseful and eerie atmosphere. He builds tension throughout the story, gradually revealing more and more about the strange happenings in Brisbane's cabins. The description of the creaking ship, the eerie silence of the night, the mysterious noises from the upper berth, it's really the dampness, I think. Uh, it, it says there's a twist ending. I'm not sure it is a twist ending. This I'm reading this review here. I don't think it is. And it, and it says, one of the flaws, it likes the story, the review, but it says that the flaws are that it's reliance on cliches and stereotypes. The story includes many of the standard tropes of horror stories, such as the lone traveller in a strange place, the creepy sounds in the night, and the mysterious disappearance of previous passengers. All true. Additionally, the story relies on stereotypes of sailors as rough and superstitious. Well, the captain isn't rough, although the steward may be which can be off-putting to modern readers, not to me, mate. Overall, The Upper Birth is a well-written horror story that effectively creates a sense of suspense and unease. While it may rely on some clichés and stereotypes, it remains a classic example of the genre and is worth reading for fans of horror fiction or listening to. I mean, I thought uh, it's a neat story. Um, it's a well-regarded story. It's one of the canon, you know, of um, which are the best uh, horror stories, classic ghost and horror stories, and this usually comes up for me, you know, and I have to apologise for playing it a little bit comic, because I think certainly the, the initial description of Brisbane going through his big nose and things like that would set it up as a comedy. 
And that might have been, I think that was intentional. This guy wrote 40 novels and numerous. He was not an amateur. He didn't, he knew how to write a story. And you can tell that. I mean, the story reads inexorably to its end. And it has that classic, you know, almost folktale the first time, the second time, the third time. And, and you know, so first of all is when he's in the, in the cabin and he's, um, He's a fellow traveller who he doesn't like. Again, slightly comic, I think. Um, it uh, disappears to throw himself overboard. Then we have um, the second time when he's on his own and it happens again. And the third time is with the captain when they f- find the monster. So classic, classic, classic. You know, fairy tales things happen in threes. Um, it all works out okay in the end, apart from he was shaken and will never travel on the Kamchatka again. Hopefully that boat is not in service still, but you never know. If you take a liner across the Atlantic, which is a massively uh, romantic thing, but I don't think it's done much these days. Somebody can correct me, I'm sure. Um, I thought it was a very competent story. I liked his descriptions of the dampness of the dead thing. What was it? Why didn't it happen to him, of course? But what was it, you know? that that It was some kind of sea monster, I think, was it? It wasn't the ghost of somebody because it was it was it it, it sort of came in from the sea, but it was associated with the cabin. So it wasn't like it was just a you know wherever they were sailing through the thing would come in and actually lived in the sea. It was associated with the ship. So what kind of thing? I don't know. It was some kind of haunting. Um, I don't know. Anyway, there we are. So I must admit I'm slightly distracted. We did get the two puppies. So uh, I've got two little puppies downstairs and I, I kind of worry about them. So I have to keep on checking, which is doing nothing for my work. Um, but it is doing a lot for my soul, uh, just having them come and play with me and cuddle me. Um, we got we were going to get Sleepy Grey because she was the runt of the litter. Now she's come out of herself. She's a total firebrand. She's feisty as heck. And uh, and then there was, um, he's now, she's called Ruby now, and uh, the other one was called Jasper, who was called Sawpaw, because he had a growth on his paw, one of the pads of his paw swollen up, and his um, looks really sore. And uh, so we, we were pr- primed by the vet that it might be cancerous. And, you know, we thought, well, we've got to have this dog, because nobody else is going to buy him, and we we can look after him and love him, you know. And I know that uh, he, the litter, of course, you may have heard me talk about Shade, who's Liam's dog, and Liam is my stepson, Sheila's son. And uh, she had 10 puppies, two of whom died. She raised eight. I love Shade to bits, of course, and uh, she's such a sweet dog. And there were these others, and, you know, they've known us from being very, very, from they were being first born. And I thought, well, you know, I'm in a better place financially because I'm old uh, than Liam to pay for surgery if it's necessary for the poor lad. Um, so we'll see. Anyway, the good news was the biopsy came back and it is, it is not malignant, but it doesn't look very good. It's swollen and, and I'd, nobody can tell us what's the matter with it. Somebody said, the vets speculated it was a um, histiocytoma. But when I've looked on the internet, as you do, and seen the pictures, it doesn't look like that at all. There is no kind of one little island of growth. It just looked like the whole pad is is big and um, scabby. And, and that's not very nice to talk about on a podcast, but there we are. So we're kind of putting cream on it and hoping. And he limps, and he's a bit subdued with it. And he, when he, get, he gets into fights with his sister, just puppy fights, but um, she prevails because he, he, I think his foot hurts, you know. 
Um, anyway, breaks my heart to be honest. But uh, we we we're persevering, and he's a he's a lovely boy, and and she is as well. She's feisty as heck. She's a lovely girl. Um, so anyway, so I'm distracted from storytelling. That's the upshot of it. Uh, I've, I've got to go out this afternoon as well, and uh, I'll be like, I'll be looking at my watch. I haven't got a watch, but I look at my phone, thinking, oh, I've got to get back to my puppies. Anyway, so uh, spring has sprung. I think it's actually sunny here. Um, I'll tell you another interesting thing. In September, we had a trip to Glastonbury. I don't know if you know Glastonbury. And there's Chalice Well there, which is like this, uh, owned by a trust. And it's where the Red Spring, Glastonbury Tor, below Glastonbury Tor, there's a Red Spring and a White Spring. One is calcium, the other is iron. And they, they rise very close to each other. And uh, the Red Spring is within these walls. The White Spring is just over the side of the road. Honestly, it must be 100 yards apart. And one stain's red and the other stain's white. And this is probably one of the reasons that Glastonbury was considered sacred. Of course, the other is that it stands high above the flatland, so it would have been an island. The Isle of Avalon, it was, they think, where King Arthur was taken to the monastic um, settlement there to be cared for. And we know there was a Celtic monastic set settlement there. So and the, uh, King Arthur's grave was famously discovered by the monks later on in the 12th century. It was a great tourist attraction so whether it was true or not, who knows, or it was fabricated to make money, who knows. Anyway, so the upshot of this is we were there in autumn and there were tons of apples appropriately, the Isle of Apples, Avalon, and um, we were eating these apples that were free and I thought, well, I'll take a number of pips. So I took the apple pips home and I put some in compost and I put some in a, a plant pot and left it outside. Well, the ones I put in compost inside haven't germinated, but the ones outside have germinated. I've got three mini apple trees that gr that grow from seeds of the apples of the Isle of Avalon. So I may not live to, I don't know how long it takes for an apple tree to provide fruit, but I may not live to enjoy those apples, but um, somebody will because I'm going to plant them outside on the ground by the river. So hopefully people will enjoy those apples. So there's two little facts for you. Anyway, I better go and see how the puppies are. Hope you're all well. Bye-bye. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody so come back. Don't they? Isn't that Everybody so? Back, you tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? you tried How do the dead come back?
Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody Somehow. come back, don't they? Isn't that Everybody so? Back, you tried to get into the locked drawer so? today, didn't you? you tried How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret of dead come back? Isn't that so? Isn't that so?